going to open your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, which should be probably the page over where we were this morning. I think we were on page 1092, so I'm guessing you're on 1093, something like that. At least in the Pew Bible. So go to the very end of the Bible, go slightly to your left a few pages, and there we are. Revelation 5. And remember what, what we want to do is, is we're, we're not going to go expositionally, although... Uh, we'll eventually would have gone through the first five full chapters of Revelation, not necessarily in that order, of course, but uh, we, we've at least, by the end of the seven weeks or whatever, we would have done that. But we want to look at the big themes. Really, it's, it's a, more of a theology of Revelation. Uh, and how Revelation presents Christ in particular is quite extraordinary in the New Testament. So if, if you've been here... Um, for a couple of years, you know, the Revelation 5 is my favorite chapter of the Bible. It's probably our fourth time going through it. And I've probably gone through this in my public ministry more than any other passage other than Psalm 23. That's mostly because of funerals and uh, bedside ministry and whatnot, because I've preached through it several times. But with that said, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word. And I hope you're not in a hurry to get home. We'll start in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll of the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. If you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne of living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts and our mind and our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, uh, that we see Christ in his essence here, the one who is worthy of worship, not just because he is creator like we saw last week, but because he is redeemer. Uh, may we ever keep him before our eyes and not take, it, take our eyes off of him. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. See you. William Miller. Oh, his picture's not coming up. Well, there was once a picture of William Miller. Is it not on, on the screen back there? Well, that's bizarre. Well, imagine there is a picture of a man who lived from 1782 to 1849. He, he was a Baptist minister, was, was converted at a, uh, after the War of 1812 and his experience there. It started as a deist, became uh, a, a Christian, and, and eventually became what we would call a, a Baptist minister, but he was a reluctant Baptist minister. Uh, really, we should say he was, he was a Baptist who was turned into a minister. That is to say that, that William Miller loved the Bible. When he got saved, he, he started a, a very deep and engaging study of God's Word. He, he was a Baptist, and, and as he was starting to teach in the local churches, he was sharing some of the things he was discovering. People were encouraging him that he needs to share this in a public format in the local church and even beyond. And, and that is how he reluctantly became what we now call a Baptist minister. And when he would speak, he was very engaging, and he, he grew quite a following prior to his death in 1849. Yet what made his speaking so distinct and his primary uh, message was, was not Baptist in general or even Christianity in general, but that he predicted when the world would end. 
Central to his argument was the book of Daniel, particularly one verse from the book of Daniel. Let me just pause there. If your, your theology primarily centered on one verse, we need to have a conversation, okay? Uh, because there's a lot of verses in the Bible, and we need to incorporate them. But nevertheless, one verse in particular really moved him to, to be drawn to this conclusion. Daniel 8.14, he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. You can see there already, whatever that verse means, okay? And you don't need to know what it means because we're not going to explore it in any great detail this evening. You can see already how a timetable can click naturally in your mind when you read a passage like that. And so William Miller's argument for the end of the world, based primarily, though not exclusively on this text, was down to three conclusions he made about it. The first conclusion was that where it says evenings and mornings, he interpreted that as years. So he had all these arguments about how the Bible messes with some, some, some timetables and whatnot, that sometimes years and days and whatnot, and weeks, so you get Daniel's 70 weeks and how that functions. Each week equals you know so many years and all that sort of stuff. So he concludes this isn't 2,300 days, evenings and mornings. It's rather 2,300 years. So you see where we are going with this. Now the question is, when does the countdown start? This is always the big question I have. When do you start the countdown? He chose... Um, the year 457. Let me add just one other thing. You have evenings, mornings here. The word sanctuary here, he interpreted to mean the earth. So whatever the verse means, it is applying to the earth. So you have 2,300 years affecting the earth, the sanctuary of God. I'm actually not too against that interpretation. I'm not saying I'm for it, but in general, the Bible will describe the earth in this sort of temple language. We've talked about that in different contexts, not our point here this evening. But he started this 2,300-year countdown on the year 457. 457 B.C. was when Artaxerxes of Persia sent Ezra to Israel to reestablish Jewish law and practice and officially decreed the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. So, here's your math. You take the year 457 B.C., you add 2,300 years, you get... 1843. 1843 was William Miller's original theory of when the world would end. He wrote, or wrote, quote, My principle in brief are that Jesus Christ will come again to this earth, cleanse, purify, and take possession of the same with all the saints sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March the 21st, 1844. Now, this sort of reminds me, I've told you all this story before, so, so no point in belaboring it, that, that I remember we were driving back, I believe from when I was a youth minister, driving back from church, and I told my wife, I said, by this day next year, you and I will be engaged, Right? So, 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 he, so you have a year, right? Somewhere in this year was his original uh, prediction uh, that Christ would return. Now, William Miller's influence, and he had quite an influence, is really down to the fact he had people around him who were promoters, if you will. Uh, they knew how to draw a crowd. They knew how to promote the message. Uh, they started a little organization, put out pamphlets and everything else. And eventually they got him to change the day to April the 18th, 1844. Now, that fits within his, well, just outside his, his original prediction. Now, some will say this original prediction is in April. Some will say it's May. Some will say it's this or that. I don't know. I've looked at multiple resources. I've not read Miller uh, and his diaries and his writings and sermons myself. So, um, nevertheless, with this prediction in hand, the first quarter of, of 1844, he traveled the country, gained followers who were known as Adventists because it was the advent of Christ that, that, that was coming. And um, he grew in numbers along the way. Now, Miller was not preaching as a Baptist. He didn't start a Baptist denomination or a Baptist movement. He start, it was a non-denominational movement he was doing. He wanted to prepare the people that Christ's return was imminent. He has done the math. He has interpreted Scripture. He knew that Christ was coming. Well, in the three summers leading up to this fateful day, April 18th, 1844, so that's three years, Miller had preached to at least a half a million people through tent meetings. Okay? He had more than 25,000 official adherents. They distributed over 4 million pieces of literature. That's in three years, three summers. Now, remember, at this time, the, the, the population of the United States was only about 20 million people. It's incredible numbers. Absolutely incredible numbers. 
So he had spoken to, what is that, one-fifth of the nations, the nation population? It really is, is quite incredible what, what he accomplished. Now, leading up to April the 18th, right, as you can imagine, you're getting close to, to that day. Christ is going to return. How, how, would, how would you respond to that? Well, there, there were all kinds of things that we know hist- historical, and later some, some legends were, were added. They didn't go buy white robes, and they didn't do some of that, so that was added by the media later. However, um, many of the followers did quit their jobs. After all, who needs a job if you ain't going to be here tomorrow, right? I mean, that, that makes sense. Some closed their shops. Some gave away all of their possessions, sold their land, all of that sort of stuff, because they wanted to have their earthly affairs in order before Christ returned. One of my favorite stories in this regard regarded a 12-year-old Millerite boy who told his father he need not do his chores. Why? Well, because when so so he wasn't going to do his chores like chopping wood because winter won't be here next year. So I don't need to do chopping the wood now. For you young people, you, you didn't have central heating. And so in the spring and summer, you had to chop wood so that in the winter, you didn't freeze to death. Uh, Google it or have Alexa do it for you. It'll show you pictures and everything. Well, I guess you know how the story ends, right? April the 14th, 1844 came, but Christ didn't come. So afterwards, Miller, uh, I got a picture up. Yeah, yeah, this picture shows up, but not the one of William Miller. This is a chronological chart produced by Miller and his little movement. You can get this online. You can zoom in on it. it I, I get lost with Daniel's stuff. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, Daniel is the one book, I, at least the second half, I just struggle with the most. But he took Daniel and, and all the prophecies, and he, he put a nice little color chart there for you. Just show you that this is real history. But after the the original prediction proved to be false, he, he published a letter and, and wrote it to his uh, uh, followers. It said, I confess my error and acknowledge my disappointment, yet I still believe that the day of the Lord is near even at the door. Now, one of the things you need to know about William Miller is that he was hesitant at first to lay down a clear date. Now, that first quote I gave you said, well, within this year, Christ is going to return. Now, I'm not a fan of that, obviously, but I can at least give the guy credit. He's saying, look, I don't think it's possible to be very, very precise. But he was somewhat pressured to pick a date. After all, you can't sell tickets if no one knows when to show up to the, to the shindig, right? And so he, he, was, he reluctantly uh, gave this date and afterwards did, did apologize. And he was ready to quit essentially his own movement. He had failed and and even though he was, as the quote suggests, confident that Christ was going to return soon, he didn't see the point in uh, promoting it the way he had before. However, those closest to him in his organization and his family and friends and everything, they encouraged him to, to go back to the drawing board. He was right in his general conclusions. He was wrong about the specific dates. And well, through a series of recalculations and conversations and whatnot, uh, William Miller discovered he was seven months off. Uh, this became known as something like the seven-month something. I, I, I didn't put it in my notes, so, but it's, it's no, no, that period between his, his first false prophecy and his, his, this, this latter one, it was set for October the 22nd, 1844. Now, 1844 was quite the year. I, I, I read uh, over the COVID quarantine an entire book on what happened in 1844. It is a wild year. Uh, think of it as 2016. Does that help you understand what 1840 was a presidential year? Uh, a lot of things going on. Uh, but he predicted October 22nd, 1844. And on that day, uh, so, so he, he goes and he, he preaches. He, he, he grows uh, a big gathering and, and he really promotes it, goes to large cities, goes to Washington, D.C., does all these sort of things. By the way, while William Miller is doing this, there's this guy who lived near William Miller, grew up near William Miller, who becomes a cult leader himself, a, a little-known guy by the name of Joseph Smith. He was, uh, I believe this was when he was running for president, and he thought William Miller was a quack. And um, I'm sure someone will take this the wrong way, but when Joseph Smith says you're a quack, you know, I'll let you finish the sentence. Well, so, so the day finally comes, October 22nd, 1844, and, and on that day, a group of Millerites gathered in... Rochester, New York. Miller was from New York, as was Joseph Smith in the burned-out district. You can Google that for, for more information. And uh, they're camped out near the Erie Canal. This is where they're, they're, Christ is going to come. This is where they're going to camp out, a whole group of them. And uh, while they're waiting, this great and large, it sounded just like that, a large windstorm brushed through the city. So much so, there was 
pretty significant damage. In fact, it knocked down the city's liberty pole. And so as this was happening, people started to say, here it comes. Here it comes. Christ is returning. William Miller was right. In fact, just a few miles down the road, shortly after, a building in Ithaca, New York, just 90 miles away from Rochester, caught on fire. It was the building where a group of Millerites were staying, waiting for Christ to return. And so they got word, there's fires over here where, where we're staying. There's, there's windstorms over here. Christ is coming. And then when the fire happened, the Millerites ran out of the building, encouraged people to repent for Christ's return was imminent. But I'm sure you can guess, being it's 2021, Christ didn't show up. This false prophecy became known as the Great Disappointment. You can Google it and it's going to come up, William Miller's Great Disappointment. Well, what happens is the same thing that always happens with eschatological cults. They splinter. You have to explain why it didn't happen. Okay? We'll see other examples of this. We, we may do Jehovah's Witnesses next, next week, not to bury the lead. But, um, and so you get this with the Millerite movement. Miller, essentially, he's, he dies five years later, essentially leaves his, his own movement. But, but it had grown to such a size that, that it wasn't just going to go away overnight. One group of significance is, is quite important here. They argued, if, if we were to go back to Daniel 8.14, they said the problem isn't here, the problem is here. They argued that Christ, uh, or that something eschatological did happen on, in, in October 22nd, 1844. But the word there is sanctuary, not the earth. So they said what Miller got wrong was he presumed that the word sanctuary meant earth when it really means heaven. And this became the foundational doctrine to say that it didn't mark the second coming, but a heavenly event. And this is the key eschatological doctrine of what we now call the Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists begin with William Miller. One of his earliest followers was a woman by the name of Ellen G. Wright who claimed to have received prophetic visions and made prophecies herself. And the Seventh-day Adventists, it's, it's, it's tough to really decide, are they cult, are they heretical, all this sort of stuff. It really is difficult. Um, but they will say that there is scripture, and there's only scripture, yes. But they, they will take Ellen White's writings and say, she made mistakes, she wasn't perfect, but they hold her writings almost to the level of scripture. And she made a number of, of prophecies and a number of, of, of um, inspired, uh, inspired statings, including some mysteries of the book of Revelation, which we don't have time to get into all that. And well, the whole point of this is, is to see, yet again, whenever you turn the prophecy of Scripture into a means to an end, and in William Miller's case, a means of predicting the end, to put it on a calendar, you miss the point of uh, eschatology in the Bible to begin with. The point isn't for you to predict when Christ is returning. The point is for you to see the Christ who is the one who shall return. William Miller misses this, despite his ability to speak and, his, and, and everything he had done in studying the Scripture. He missed the entire point. The point is for us to see Christ in all of his glory. Let us begin here in Revelation chapter 5 with uh, the scroll, verses 1 to 5, the, the scroll. It starts in verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Right here, we're given all the information we need to know about this, this scroll. And you need to remember that what you get here in chapter 5 is, is being picked up from what we saw last week. You remember that, that the proverbial curtain is pulled back in heaven. John sees the divine council and in all of their magnificent glory. And they are worshiping the one who sits upon the throne. And they are, there they are singing, holy, holy, holy is he who creates and sustains the universe. He is savior. He, he, is, he is creator. And well, now that the scene changed, that, that, that now that we've identified who this is, the one who sits upon the throne, who, who is, who is uh, um, creator, he says, now I see is, 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 is a seal. And this seal is, or scroll rather, is quite important. In the right hand of God is a scroll, and it is sealed up with seven seals. Now, in, in ancient Rome, 
one would seal a scroll with wax to protect its contents, right? Uh, we, we, we get this, right? Whenever I went to Africa, I wanted to bring back dirt with me. I'm, I'm, I'm a poor guy, so just, just work with me here. Actually, I, I was quite fond of my dirt. It's my favorite thing I brought back other than earrings for someone, but we won't say what happened to earrings. But I did get, get, get some, some dirt. And I remember, like, I didn't have anything to put dirt in. But what I had taken in, in my baggage, baggage was, was a lot of Ziploc bags, I'm guessing my mother snuck those in there. So what I did was, was I took a handful of dirt, you know, put it in a bag, and I thought, the more bags I put this in there, the more secure they'll be, right? I don't care if one or two break, but, but the more I put in there, the less, more likely it is that the dirt will make it home, and it won't just be at the bottom of my bag. So I put in like, let's just say seven, seven seals. We'll put it that way, right? And what happened was all of them broke except for the one on the very inside that was most protected. That's how I got my dirt here. There's no one. However many I did, I probably did like three or four. They all broke except for that, that one. So, so I barely made it here. Oh, same thing here, right? Is, is that when that wax is broken, you know it's been tampered with. If you receive a letter in the mail, let's say from the IRS, that way we're all scared, and, and the envelope, you can tell if it's been opened, right? The seal has been broken. And if I open it, I didn't do it carefully or with a knife. I, I took my finger, jabbed it up there, ripped it off, and who knows whether or not, you know, anything could, could stay inside of it, right? Uh, because I'm a man, right? I can open it without any of that fancy stuff. Why would anyone buy an envelope opener? I mean, do you just have so much money that you can just buy those things? And there's all kinds of envelope openers that are fancy. Why are we buying fancy envelope openers? I'm sorry. This is not in my notes. It just, I didn't realize it bothered me as much as it clearly does, but... Paper cuts, really? I mean, we're worried about paper cuts. Are we so safe in this country? See there, that's the end of the world, right? Jesus is like, okay, they're at the point of, of envelopes and paper cuts in that church. time for me to show up and fix all this. Well, this scroll is, is, is sealed with seven seals. And, and also, the, the greater and, and more important the message, the more seals it has. We, we, we get this, I, I think. Now, the scroll is, is here. It's, it has a message on it. In fact, you see that it's, it's, it's on the front and the back, right? It's, it's a very important message of, of, of great importance. And, and ultimately, what this scroll is, it is the, the unraveling of God's redemptive plan for the earth. In fact, if you start in chapter 6, we describe them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But the four horsemen of the apocalypse are the first four seals that are opened of the scroll. Right? So chapter 5 sets up the drama of, of what happens in chapter 6 and following. You have to open the, 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 the seven seals. The seventh seal opens up, I believe it is, the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens up the seven bowls. And that's the general 21 judgments of the book of Revelation. And uh, so, so we go down to verse 2. Uh, I saw a mighty angel. Your, your translation may say strong angel or something like that. Proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? We should get this, right? If, if, if the IRS sends you a, a, a letter in the mail, I am violating the law if I open it, right? We, we understand this. It's not addressed to me. It's addressed to you. So, too, we are, the question of who is worthy, who alone can open this, this, this scroll and break its seals, is a very important one. After all, if the scroll isn't open, the redemptive plan of God doesn't come through. And remember, the original recipients need the redemptive plan of God to come through. After all, as we've already seen in, in three letters of Smyrna and Pergamum and, and Ephesus, is there's suffering persecution on the outside. We saw Antipas this morning was executed uh, there in Pergamum. Uh, we see uh, threats on the inside. Uh, and so what is it that they're wanting is someone hurry up and open this scroll. We've we got real problems down here, and we need Jesus to, to fix these things. And so the question is immediately, who is worthy? Now, chapter 4, the end of it, gave us a hint here, right? In verse 11 of chapter 4, the song that, that, that the 24 elders who cast the crowns before the throne, they cry, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. So we get a hint of this. The one who's sitting upon the throne, is he worthy to open the scroll? And this is the question of the mighty angel. And it's important for us to see that this is a mighty angel. We don't know the identity, nor does it really matter. What matters is this is a strong, mighty angel. And he's declaring as great and mighty as he might be, 
He is not worthy. He's not worthy at all, let alone little old John here. Who is worthy to take from the creator the scroll? Who is worthy to break its seals? Who is worthy to unfold the drama of history and the promises of God? That's the question of the passage. Who is worthy? And this leads to silence in heaven, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Utter and complete silence. The trifold of heaven and earth and under the earth signifies the fullness of creation. Remember, this is picking up in chapter 4. All of creation is stunned by the question because they know the answer isn't them. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is worthy to open this scroll. And so what does John do there in verse 5? He, he begins to weep. Weep loudly, it says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. He is weeping over the absence of one who is worthy. He recognizes here that he is helpless. And without one who is worthy, he is hopeless. His weeping is rooted in the sense that all the hope of Israel and the world will remain lost if it is not open. The great promises of the prophets and the apostles will remain undone. There is no one worthy of it. And if no one opens the seals, the earth and the nations and its people will continue to sink more and more into depravity. Well, verse 5 shows us that his weeping is premature. And one of the elders, this would be the 24 elders, said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. See, John assumes there is no hope for him or the church or the world. But one of the 24 elders who is forevermore there in the throne room reminds John, you don't need to weep here. Now is not the time to weep. Rest assured, there is one who is worthy. And notice the pictures we have here, right? The text doesn't come out and say, hey guys, it's Jesus. It's in a footnote. That's not what it, that's not what it does. It gives us apocalyptic imagery and uses the apocalyptic genre for us to see more clearly who this Christ is, this, this Christ that the church needs to be reintroduced to, and we continue to be reintroduced to. Notice the first picture he gives is the lion from the tribe of Judah. This is where C.S. Lewis gets his Aslan character. And with the lion imagery brings with it power and might and authority and royalty and ultimately victory. Throughout the Bible, the lion represents strength and power. Let me give you just two examples. In Judges, the story of Samson, right? Uh, where he, the riddle is, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion, right? And just him basically bragging, hey, you know, I just ripped a, a, a mountain lion apart because I'm a man. Proverbs 30, 30, I'm just taking part of this verse. The lion, which is mightiest among the beasts, right? This is clearly what scripture does with it. We see in Genesis that the lion, that Judah is compared to a lion's whelp. So, so it's associated with royalty as well as it is power and might. That, that makes sense to us. The king is the most powerful man in any given nation. And it's no accident that David is, in his story, described as the slayer of lions, right? Remember when he's going to take down Goliath the giant? And, and Saul's like, little boy, right? What are you doing? He's like, I kill lions on the weekends. Who's this joker, right? right? And I do it with a slingshot. I mean, that's cooler than what the hobbits do on, 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 with Bilbo, right? I mean, it's pretty impressive. I can slay lions. I can handle little old Goliath, right? And so it's not an accident that he's a slayer of, of lions. And it's not an accident that Daniel, when persecuted, is fed to the lions and overcomes them. No accident. This imagery keeps popping up. Well, one key theme throughout Revelation thus far is one of conquering and, and overcoming. We, we, we saw this this morning, so I don't want to reread all of those, but go back over the seven letters, and each of them ends with, He who overcomes, uh, if you have the uh, New American Standard Version, or if you have the ESV Version, it says, He who conquers. They're translating the same Greek word, of course. But, but this continues throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, we see, I looked to behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. He went out conquering and to conquer. The same thing in chapter 11. When they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will make war with them and overcome them, conquer them, and kill them. Later, uh, uh, chapter 13, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. An authority over every tribe, people, tongue, 
Chapter 17, again, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of hosts, King of kings. Again, notice the language of conquering, overcoming. Chapter 21, He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be His God, and He will be my Son. So once again, much like we saw with the issue of the sword this morning, what you get is, is there are, the issue is who will win, who will conquer, who will overcome. And then and the churches are suffering. It seems as if they are being conquered and overcome by Rome, by the nations, by Satan's throne, by the dragon, the ancient serpent. But, but Revelation comes and writes to the, the, to the churches, have patient endurance and you shall overcome. And so we get this picture as the beast rises and makes war and seeks to overcome. But then we see that, that, that Christ comes. And what does he do? He conquers and he overcomes. And, and so it ends here in chapter 21. He who conquers, he who overcomes, Overcomes these things will inherit all of this and be son of God. So the lion imagery plays into this. I saw a lion, the one who will conquer. So he can open the scroll. But not only that, we, we see that he's not only a lion, but he's also the root of David. Again, David is the slayer of lions. But again, this is Old Testament imagery, and this imagery is taken from Isaiah 11. Time won't allow us to go through it. I'm already behind. But in Isaiah 11, we see the, the coming of the Messiah foretold along with his kingdom. Isaiah 11 says that the root of David's kingdom, the lion will lie down with the lamb. The young boy will put his hand in the serpent's hole. You don't know that passage. It's, it's a messianic hope that there will be peace on earth. But what we ultimately have here is an image of peace and promise. The lion, the root of David, by his very nature, has the right to take the scroll from the Father. He has overcome. He is the lion. And so for the early churches, they need to see, it isn't that they're waiting for Christ to overcome. He has overcome. He is overcoming. He will conquer. That's the great hope, isn't it? And that leads, of course... The Savior. So we saw the scroll. Let's look at the Savior, verse, starting in, in verse 6 there. And between the throne, which we saw in, in chapter 4, the four living creatures, who we also met in chapter 4, and among the elders, who we were also introduced in chapter 4. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spears of God sent out into all the earth. So he first sees a lion. You and I, we can get that, right? When Aslan roars... The witch is destroyed. Winter is over. Spring has come. Now, we, we get that image. There's a reason why Lewis chose that imagery. It's beautiful imagery. But a lamb, come on. That's not impressive. And it's quite shocking, isn't it? If you're reading this the first time, you're thinking, yeah, all right, lion. I can, I can get on that. Oh, by the way, he's simultaneously a lamb. What? That's not impressive. No lamb ever accomplished anything of, of, of worth. But we should note that the lamb imagery is found throughout Revelation. We've already seen one example, haven't we? It shows up five, five times in Revelation 5 alone. In fact, it's found in almost every chapter between chapters 5 and 21. Let me give you a few examples. In chapter 7, This I looked, behold, a great multitude no one could number, clothed in white robes, crying out the loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the thrones, chapter 4, and to the lambs, chapter 5. We're bringing back that. Imagery, chapter 12, and they, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Notice the language of conquering and, and lamb right there. How, how, how does a lamb conquer? No lamb has ever conquered anything. Chapter 14, then I looked, behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb, and with him the 144,000. We talked about 144,000 last week, didn't we, with, with the Southcott uh, story. Chapter 15, verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the song of the lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Chapter 17, they will make war on the Lamb. The Lamb will overcome them. They will conquer them. We saw that earlier. Chapter 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Lambs don't have weddings, right? You ever thought of that? We, we spout this. We don't even pause and think about what is actually being said. It's the marriage of Christ to his church, yes, but the imagery is that of a Lamb. At the center of this wedding feast is the cross, right? That's the whole point of the Lamb imagery. The, the bride exists because the lamb was slain. And this is a strange imagery. We are to see Christ clothed in victory. That's the lion. But he's clothed in victory because he is the lamb simultaneously. This is why Revelation's genre of apocalyptic, 
literature is so helpful. It gets confusing, yes, but if this were a parable, it wouldn't make any sense. If this were a poem, it wouldn't make any sense. If this were just general prophecy, it wouldn't make any sense. But using the genre of apocalyptic imagery, it makes complete sense to us, doesn't it? We get He's not describing something literal, so you can't paint this, a lion lamb. But in your mind's eye, you know exactly what it is John is describing here. Victory, he shows, comes through defeat. Power through surrender. A crown by the means of nails. That can only make sense by what Luther would call a theology of the cross that turns worldly desire, worldly power on his head. See, this is the problem with what we talked about patriotism, patriotism today, is that when we think the church is at risk unless we're winning elections, we've undermined the lamb. The lamb has conquered by dying. And in his death is the victory. The world uh, thinks it has power through might and armies and sore. The, but Christians understand we are already victorious because of the empty tomb. It turns everything on its head. And this is the premise of the entire book. Christ conquers the nations by the means of the cross. And at the end of each letter, the same is given. We conquer the nations by the cross. I think his commentary on this, Morris writes, None but an inspired composer of heavenly visions would ever have thought of it. When earthbound men want symbols of power, they conjure up mighty beasts and birds of prey. Russia elevates the bear, Britain the lion, France the tiger, the United States the spread eagle, all of them ravenous. It is only the kingdom of heaven that would dare to use this symbol of might, not the lion for which John was looking, but the helpless lamb, and at that, a slain one. It's a powerful imagery, isn't it? I tell you what, if you would just meditate on how a lamb can conquer and how it fits in Revelation, it would bless your soul. And it would radically change the way you think and live your life. What you won't do is turn on the news and bite your nails the entire time. Because the lamb who was slain has conquered. What a wild imagery that is. And the lion is the lamb. We, we spent an entire a week on that very imagery several years ago. when We looked at lamb imagery in the New Testament. But note that the lamb is standing in the epicenter of the heavenly host. He's just not under the character. He's the center of it all. All attention is on him, for he alone is worthy to open a scroll. We see he has seven horns. This is likely a picture of absolute power and might. Seven eyes, perhaps a picture of his omniscience. He sees everything. Nothing can escape his gaze. Although I'm funny with eyes. Remember that, that the four living creatures had eyes within and eyes uh, without. And I don't know what to do with some of that. So this is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus enthroned and empowered and victorious. Why? Because he is worthy. Worthy. And so the lion turned lamb, the root of Jesse, takes the scroll there in verse 7 because he is worthy. I see the lion, I see the lamb, and he went and he takes it out of the right hand of him who sits upon a throne. And this leads then to the song, verses 8 to 14. The response to Jesus or the lamb taking this is immediate. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down for the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There's so much there. Uh, the, the, the four living creatures, we talked about them. This is all the divine counsel here, these mysterious creatures. They fall down in worship. These mighty beings who, who are indescribable. The 24 elders, they too, part of the divine council, I believe it could be wrong, could represent the church or something else. They too fall down and worship because they understand they are neither creator nor the ones who are worthy. He alone is worthy, the lion, lamb, mightier than they. And, and they fall down one after the other, and, and they worship them. And then notice, each of them are, are carrying a harp to, to add to, to the worship. And then they bring with them incense, which is an Old Testament imagery that represents prayer. You, you would burn incense in the temple so that as you walked in, you would see that the prayers of the saints are ascending into heaven and being received. What is the picture we have here? The prayers of the saints, particularly the seven churches, all suffering in their own unique way, here, Christ is receiving their voices. He is, he can, we can officially say Christ knows their tribulation. Christ knows their sufferings. Here is the prayer of the saints. And what comforting it is, the lion lamb who has conquered, is conquering, will conquering. Here's your prayers right now. Not only that, but he intercedes as your great high priest even right now. If you knew that Christ was praying for you, would you ever buy into fear? If you knew that Christ received your prayers, 
Would you ever live in anxiety? No, I don't, I don't think we would. Yeah, that is precisely what the New Testament tells us. And notice they, they take these prayers, they, they fall down, they have their harps, and they sing a new song there in verse 9. Now in Revelation, the word new is an important word. Every time you see new, go ahead and highlight it, circle it, uh, underline it, or whatever it is you, you, you like to do. God will forgive you in the end for writing in his book. But new is, is a re- repetitive theme throughout it. For example, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, Christians are given a new name. We saw that this morning, isn't it? Remember the white stone where your new name is chiseled? That cannot be removed. In chapter 3 and in chapter 21, we await for a new Jerusalem. In chapter 21, we also wait for a new heavens and a new earth. In chapter, uh, also in chapter 21, in the end, Christ will declare all things what? New. All things are new. Chapter 14, another new song is composed. The song of Moses, the song of the Lamb. And so in the Old Testament, new songs were composed when the old songs were no longer adequate. Not that they, 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 they didn't tell us something about God, but that God has, has done something so fantastical, a new song is required. It seems like, if I can add a footnote, sometimes Christians fight over whether or not we should sing new songs. It seems like I've heard that before, right? Because if it's not 200 years old, then it's not inspired by God. You can't sing it in the church. Which, by the way, look in your hymn book. You have, you have I believe the, the youngest song was written in the 1960s by a Catholic priest. They'll know we are Christians by our love. How come it's okay to sing songs written in the last 100 years so long as it's a Gaither or a Catholic priest but we can't sing some over the last 20 years? That's just me being a, a Southerner growing up in the Bible Belt. For, you can ignore I said that. Let's just move on. But notice what they sing in the rest of verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Notice they are singing in chapter 4, he is holy, holy, holy. And now in chapter 5, they're singing, you are worthy, worthy, worthy. And the bridge is actually seen between these two chapters. Again, in chapter 4, verse 11, they're saying, you are worthy because you are creator. Now that he's taken a scroll, they're saying, you're not just worthy, uh, you're not worthy just because you are creator. You're worthy because as creator, you are also redeemer. And here we see the merging of these two theological themes that we dare not miss. You are worthy because you were slain. Notice the past tense, you were slain, you are not slain. If I am ever slain, God forbid, I will forever be slain. Is that fair enough? I ain't coming back. Don't want to. Can't do it. Christ was slain. The lamb was slain. And it's because he was slain and is no longer slain. He is redeemer. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from the world. Tribe, language, people, nation. He is worthy because he has conquered through the cross. He's the Lamb of God. He's redeemed the unredeemable, loved the unlovable, all through the shedding of his blood. And it's not limited to culture, language, or race, gender, nationality, or any other man-made boundaries. Christ purchases for himself humanity. But not only that, he doesn't just save people and move on. Notice what he does. He creates out of them. So we see that if, if creation is redemption, redemption is creation. So it's natural for us to move from the creator to the redeemer, but you can't stop there. You have to go from the redeemer back to the creator. You have purchased for yourself a ransomed people from around the world. And you made them. You created for yourself a kingdom, a kingdom of priests. Now, if y'all who came on Wednesday nights, that language should sound striking to you. We spent like five weeks on this theme of priesthood. Christ is the great high priest who makes for himself a kingdom of priests. He creates a kingdom. He creates a people. I mean, doesn't this make sense in light of what it is we read in the Bible? Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's only one way to translate dead. But Christ made you alive. You tell me, is that creation or is that redemption? The answer is yes. The man comes to Christ and and he says, what is it you want from me? He says, open my eyes. Is he asking for creation or is he asking for redemption? The answer is yes. Had you been here, my my brother wouldn't have died. Don't you believe on the resurrection and the life? What is he promising, creation or redemption? The answer is yes. When the psalmist can, can declare, create in me a clean heart, is he asking for creation or redemption? The answer is yes. 
See, redemption isn't a pick-me-up. It's not a second chance. It's not a, add a boy, you'll do better next time, Skip. No. Redemption is creation. You are not who you once were. You are who Christ now declares you to be. We've got to move on. This is so much here. The angels joined the 24 elders and four living creatures, verse 11. The number of voices are innumerable. And they sing much the same thing there in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Seems like we just sang that today. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Very similar to what they sang in chapter 4. Now it's in the context of, 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 of redemption, not just creation. In verse 13, everyone falls down and worship and, and proclaim the same thing. It's almost like a ripple effect, right? Those in, in the middle who are nearest, they, 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 they fall down and then it goes out, out from, from there. Chapter 14 comes the Amen Chorus. These are certainly can't be the, the Baptists. The end of 13 says, To him who sits on the throne to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever. And the four living creatures, these are the Pentecostals, where they shout Amen. And the 24 elders, they fall down to worship, affirming all of that. Amen just means so be it. Let it be so. It is affirming of that which has been said. He alone is worthy. So what do we do with this, right? If, if we have time, we, we could go throughout the rest of Revelation. What Revelation is all about is how Christ makes all things new. Christ the Redeemer creates as Redeemer. And so we get this, this, this unfolding of human drama, the war among the nations, uh, attacking his church. But what does he do? He preserves his people. He conquers the nations. And upon his return, we get a new heavens, a new earth, a new city, a new Jerusalem. All things are new. We have it in Christ because he is redeemer. And in his redemption comes creation. This is the whole point of Revelation. If we had time, we, we could just trace all of it through. It's just so much here in one chapter. Can I give you just three points of application? You go home if you're not wore out already. The first thing is we need a creator-redeemer. If you're the indifferent church, like the Ephesian church we saw a few weeks ago, and you're defined by coldness, you encounter this Savior. How can your love for him not be stirred? If you're the suffering church like the Smyrnans are, Defined by fear. Are you not emboldened in your faith because you believe you have already conquered? If you're the compromised church we saw this morning in Pergamum, you're defined by worldliness. Are you not repentant upon seeing this? Why would you compromise with the losing side? The lion lamb has won. We need a creator-redeemer. We need a bigger understanding of what the Bible means by redemption and by creation. Secondly, we need genuine worship. I won't spend a lot of time on this because I already did it this morning, but this is why the evangelical tendency to downplay worship is scandalous at best. Worship is to encounter the lion lamb who alone is worthy. To have a small view of worship is to have a small view of Christ. Worship isn't about you. It's not about your preferences or your desires. But who gets you up the most? If you ever leave here and, and, and say, well, uh, I go to church to, to, to feel better or something like that, you have missed the point of the local church. Worship is about Christ being lifted up for he alone is worthy. More to be said there. Let's just move on. Verse, or the third one is what the world and the church needs is salvation. It is evident to me that we are longing for saviors. I was watching a documentary about Billy Graham today. It wasn't very good as the PBS one. They, they, they want you to think he, well, I'll just save it for the website. But, uh, well, I'll move on. But it is evident we are looking for saviors. We have temples today built for media, medicine, technology, power, entertainment. And we turn to them as refugees in moments of crisis, don't we? Think about COVID. When COVID hit, we turned to entertainment in our isolation, didn't we? You know, Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, HBO, whatever it might be. Well, that eventually got boring, didn't it? We had to turn to technology for work and for play. So, so Zoom's stock went through the roof, right? The rough, if you're from the South. And, and, and so, so we've been addicted to, to technology. We turned to power and politics. Anyone remember that last year? That didn't work. We turned to medicine. Always looking for a savior. 
Always looking for someone to fix our problems. We are longing for saviors. And there stands the Christian. Too often we're promoting the same false refuges. Same false messiahs. But here is the lion lamb who conquers by the means of the cross. Why do we seek the same worldly power when we're the victors? You tell me if you agree with this. This is George Smeaton. I believe he's a Scottish theologian from the 19th century. He may not be Scottish, maybe English, but you don't know, so that's okay. You tell me if he's right in his book on the atonement. To convert one sinner from his way is an event of greater importance than the deliverance of a whole kingdom from temporal evil. Do you believe it? I don't think most Christians do. Now, don't misread him, but it's important that you do read him right. The salvation of the sinner is more important than getting and solving AIDS in sub-Sahara Africa. Do you believe that? The salvation of one sinner is more important than the eradication of disease, infection, and yes, even a virus. Salvation of sinner is of greater value than eradication of poverty, violence, and war. You believe that? Why don't we act like it? We will spend every penny we have to live an easier life, if it, even if it means our neighbors are damned to hell. What the world needs and what the church needs is a redeemer. One of my favorite new worship songs is based off of Revelation 5. I don't listen to the artist very much, but I absolutely love this song. Simply called, Is He Worthy? He asks, do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and to open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He was David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Of all blessing and honor and glory. Is he worthy of this? He is. Let's pray.